Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Catholic Truth Podcast, where we teach and preach the Catholic faith that comes down to us over 2,000 years from Jesus and the apostles. We want to help you to know your faith, to love your faith, and to live it with purpose and passion every day, and even be able to defend it. Sometimes on this show, we have guests who are converts to the faith or who are experts in their field or who have written a book or have a story in some way. Today, our guest fits all of those. <laughs> we have uh, Trent Horn joining us today, and he is a convert from the Catholic to the Catholic faith and is a speaker, author, and apologist. Uh, he has a master's degree in theology and philosophy and bioethics, and currently he's a staff apologist at Catholic Answers. He has his own podcast called The Council of Trent, and he has spoken at countless atheists and agnostics. Uh, he has a lot of debates online. He speaks on the existence of God, pro-life topics, you name it. He's an expert at all of them. And today we would like to welcome him to the show. So thank you for joining us today, Trent. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And today we're going to be talking about doubts. In case anybody didn't know by the title of this video, we're going to be talking about doubts. Um, only people who have really poor faith have doubts, right, Trent? And, and, and Catholic apologists and nobody else ever has a doubt. Is that That's about right, right? Right. Well, it does depend on what you mean by the term doubt, of course. But the idea that the only people who struggle with belief uh, are simply those of a poor faith, uh, that, that is just simply not true. Uh, even there are people who have gone through the dark night of the soul, like St. John of the Cross, Mother Teresa, uh, who have felt <clears throat> spiritually dry, uh, distant from God, who have, have wrestled with serious questions about theology. Uh, and so when we confront tough issues in our faith, you know, sometimes we do have these, these difficulties or fleeting doubts. Uh, but uh, well, I wrote a book recently where I kind of confront my own doubts and difficulties that I deal with called Devil's Advocate. It's a dialogue book with my inner skeptic. And I'm hoping in that book, when people see me struggle with the difficulties I have with the faith, uh, that it may help them as well. What do you mean you have difficulties with the faith? And of course, I'm using all since, you know, I'm using tongue in cheek here. But right. uh, what do you mean that some people would be like, wait, you're a staff apologist at Catholic Answers. Wait, you know, what do you mean you have struggles? What do you mean you have doubts? Maybe you could talk a little bit about the book and what, you know, kind of your purpose behind that. Right. Well, uh, just because I believe Catholicism is true, it doesn't follow that every single question that is brought up will have a complete answer. Uh, the fact of the matter is that living on this side of the veil uh, in our earthly lives, St. Paul said, now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we shall behold him, God, face to face. In the context, when Paul was writing that, uh, glass mirrors were just being invented in ancient Egypt. Uh, so you might think a mirror dimly, what does that mean? Well, the most common mirror in Paul's time was not a glass mirror. It was polished bronze. If you wanted to see a reflection of yourself, you just looked at a piece of metal like bronze that was highly polished, and you could kind of see yourself, but not very well. Uh, and what Paul is saying is that's sort of the image we have of God right now. We kind of get it, but there's it's still quite lacking, and we shouldn't confuse that with the real thing. So there's going to be a lot of things like uh, trying to understand the mysteries of our faith. We call them mysteries not because they're completely unintelligible, but because we wouldn't understand them if God had not revealed them to us, and we're never going to perfectly understand them. We're never going to perfectly understand what it is like for a divine person to assume a human nature, for an infinite God to be three co-equal, co-eternal persons that are 
distinct from one another, but are not separate beings. So you can have a hard time wrapping your head around some of these things. It doesn't mean you should give up your faith. And so what I write in the book is I, I dive into uh, not those issues in particular, but all but other issues where people will make objections, and the church doesn't have a specific answer to the objection. It leaves a lot of room for how we ought to reply in these cases, and I just try to help people in that regard. Yeah, so I, I recommend the book Devil's Advocate. Uh, you can buy it on Catholic Answers Press. And um, if you are struggling with doubts, if you are struggling with questions out there, if you are struggling with your faith, and some some of you I know just from comments on our tube channels and on our TikTok and Instagram, that many people are struggling with doubts and with faith, and they've come through big crises. And I really feel like this is the book for you uh, in many cases because you know it's going to not only help you to work through your own doubts and questions, but it's going to help give you the answers to your questions and doubts as well. And that's really what we need. I feel like oftentimes we see life as a puzzle. We just dump it out many times, and our faith doesn't make sense. It's just a big mess on the table. But if you get enough of your questions answered and they make sense, then slowly the puzzle pieces start to go in place and you see the picture start coming together and you're like, oh, I can see it. Oh, this is coming together. And then at some point you have this aha moment where you see the whole picture and you're like, I get it. It makes sense. It's awesome. And then you just devour every book and you just can't get enough of it. And I really feel like Trent's book will help you with this. Um, Now, I have a few, (laughs) my mind's going every which way uh, on certain things that you've said, Trent, but let me just start out by saying, and maybe you can comment on this, but I heard a, a speaker once say, and I thought he was right on the money, that even atheists, and he said, don't make this mistake. Don't doubt it. He said, even atheists have doubts. Atheists wonder if they are wrong. Atheists wonder if there is going to be an eternity and a judgment and they're going to be on the wrong side. So atheists do doubt their non-beliefs as well. Christians, they might accuse Christians of, oh, well, you guys aren't sure. You don't know, but they don't know either, do they? Right. Uh, this is something that uh, Pope Benedict XVI actually talks about, though, writing when he was Cardinal Ratzinger in his book, Introduction to Christianity. He says, both the believer and the unbeliever share, each in his own way, doubt and belief if they do not hide from themselves and from the truth of their being. Neither can quite escape either doubt or belief. For the one, faith is present against doubt. For the other, through doubt and in the form of doubt. So the idea here is that an atheist will often sometimes have doubts like, well, how how could a world like this just be purely natural? How could that be? And doubt will creep in there. Though Christians can sometimes doubt like, well, where is God when a terrible thing happens? How could the world be like this if God exists? Each of us asks the question, how could the world be like this if there is a God? And how could the world be like this if there is no God? Uh, so people will ask that in, in different respects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know for myself, I've shared a lot of doubts in the past and I've struggled and I've prayed and I want to encourage people to pray through the doubts. Um, but as for you, Trent, um, maybe you could talk a little bit uh, about some of the chapters here in your book. I found it uh, very interesting. And these, uh, and just so anyone knows, I mean, he covers a lot of different topics from, uh, you know, why does God send people to hell if he's all loving? You know, a really common question that people struggle with. And right. um, uh, why do, why, why not heaven now? And what right. about uh, babies? And what about 
Christians and Mary and virgin birth and earthquakes and uh, sorry, earth euthanasia, abortion. I mean, he literally covers so many things on this topic. But today, uh, at least right now, I'd like to start out with um, why not heaven now? Uh, Could you talk a little bit about this chapter and kind of the doubts that might arise in someone's mind, including yours? Right. So when we think about the problem of evil, we think, well, why, if God is all powerful and all loving, why is there evil? It seems like God might have a good reason for allowing evil. Uh, is If that's the case, then it makes sense to say, okay, well, there's certain uh, goods that can be achieved. Uh, but it, now it's interesting. Some people say, well, you know, we have free will. Uh, I mean, let's say this, like God wants us to... Um, uh, God allows evil so that human beings can exercise free will. Though people can choose to do good or they choose to do evil, and evil results from that. But an objection might be, well, what if God in heaven, we will have free will, uh, but there won't be evil? So it seems like if God lo- cares about free will so much, why doesn't he just make heaven right now? Why bother making earth? Just make instantly create a heavenly state where people have free will and boom, there you go. And you don't even have to have any evil and you still get the free will. Uh, And how do we reply to that? Well, what I like to think about is maybe God has even more morally sufficient reasons. Uh, Well, there's a few different ways to look at it, though. One could challenge the idea that we will have free will in heaven, or at least free will as we understand it here on earth. So free will, and there's different ways to define it. But one way to define it is that you could have done something differently or there's nothing external to you that is determining your actions. Uh, So in heaven, we will have free will among good options. Maybe I'll sing this praise to God or I'll sing that praise to God. Uh, And we'll be able to freely choose among many good options. We just won't be able to choose any evil options. But why will that be? Well, maybe God will change our nature in some way uh, through through, uh, our entrance into heaven. So we will never, we internally won't desire evil anymore. Or the presence of God in the beatific vision, we just simply won't ever, we won't ever desire that we could choose evil. We simply never will. Uh, So you might say that the free will that we have here on earth is different than the kind we'll have in heaven. So there's still a particular kind of good here that is achieved in allowing it to exist. But another response is to say, well, Maybe there's other goods that God wants to achieve that you can't have if you simply created a perfect world immediately. So the catechism talks about how the world is journeying to a state of perfection. So I guess that's a question. Is it better to create a perfect world or to create an imperfect world that becomes perfect? Uh, You you might say, well, the, the perfect world, because there's nothing bad about it. Well, that's one way to look at it. But you might also say that the imperfect becoming perfect is better because it has goods the perfect world does not have. Some of those goods would be the good of compassion, which you can't have without suffering, the good of courage, which you can't have without danger, uh, the good of uh, forgiveness, for example, which you can't have without wrongdoing. So you might say, well, God has a morally sufficient reason that even if he could create a perfect world, it's even better for the imperfect to become perfect than for God to order things in that way. And as long as God compensates those who freely choose him, uh, they're not wronged by enduring evils in this life. That if you have infinite happiness in the next life, anything you suffer in this life 
uh, you'll still end up having infinite happiness overall. And so God hasn't wronged anyone in allowing an imperfect world to become perfect. Yeah. And uh, there's a whole lot of objections I've noticed in your chapters. Like you don't just take a few of the the lame atheist objections. You take the really good top of the line objections that, you know, people have skeptics, doubters, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, you know, I find before we get into more arguments, uh, I think this is important, but I find there's a lot of hypocrisy among atheists and agnostics and even many other religions. You know, you had mentioned earlier, Trent, that, oh, we don't know everything about the Trinity. You know, there's no way we could, as a finite creature, probe the infinity of God. And so, the infinite being of God. So, you know, many atheists I've heard, well, you don't understand, so therefore you don't know. You don't have all the evidence, so therefore you can't possibly know. You know, when you ask them to supply, okay, well, then how did we get here without a God? Oh, well, you know what? I don't know, and I'm okay saying I don't know. But they demand that you give them all the evidence. And I don't think that's fair to Christians. And I think it causes a lot of doubts and fears in Christians. Right. A person can have an explanation for something, even if they don't fully understand the explanation. Uh, Scientists routinely postulate things like multiverses or interdimensional strings or quarks. They'll postulate things that they don't fully understand themselves, how they work, but it makes sense given the models that they have and the evidence they have to postulate this kind of entity to explain um, the world around them. Then the same for Christians, that we can postulate God, even if we don't fully understand what it is like to be God. That's something we, we will never understand. But it seems that we can postulate that and say, well, there's a, at the very least this infinite uncaused cause that is responsible for change and causation and moral morality, the fine-tuning of the universe— And that uh, fulfills the role of a good argument if you reach that conclusion through valid reasoning. Yeah, and if I can be honest, I don't understand trigonometry. That does not mean it's not true. I could learn it. (laughs) It doesn't mean it's not true just because I don't understand it. Well, it's not even just trigonometry. Uh, Most of us, for example, cannot explain how a cell phone works. Or we'll explain it, but with generic terms that don't communicate much information. Like when I say, well, it turns my voice into a signal and sends it to a tower. Okay, but how does it do that? Well, I don't know exactly. (laughs) Uh, Most people, unless you're an engineer, you can't explain how it does that. Uh, But you can still trust that it works. And I think that's something similar. In my book, I say, you can have the wow, even if you don't have the how. So you can marvel at God's glory in creating the universe and his mercy towards human beings, even if you don't understand every facet of how he accomplishes his ends. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because I was reading your chapters and at the end of every chapter, the atheist got the last word. And I was like, oh, you know, it seemed like Trent didn't have an answer for it. But then you continue it in the next chapter. And then each chapter continues from the next one on. And one one that I find interesting and that a lot of people talk about is why does God create damned? I mean, if he knew people were going to go to hell, why would he create them in the first place? I think, you know, this is a question that leads to doubt in a lot of people's minds as well. Right. And this is a hard one. And I admit in the, in the book that I don't have a completely satisfactory answer. But just because I don't know the answer to that question, well, I do know that God exists. I know Jesus rose from the dead. 
I know that we find salvation through him and his church. Those who uh, reject God will be apart from God for all eternity. I understand all of that, and that all makes sense, and I'm not going to abandon those beliefs just because at the end of the line, I have a question, well, why would God make someone, if he knows with his perfect foreknowledge, that person is going to be damned anyways? So there's a variety. Now, the thing is, there's not a settled answer to the question. Uh, and I make that clear in the book that it's okay to have an, a question you don't know exactly how to answer, but there's different possible answers that will be uh, palatable to different people. Uh, so one answer is that God does, when God creates the world, uh, he orders it towards a good end, but he does not know what free creatures uh, would do in certain situations until after they're created. So this is called middle knowledge. Uh, so natural knowledge is God knows, you know, what uh, everything that could be. And God's free knowledge is he knows once he does create the universe, not that he does it in time, but when the universe is created, God knows everything that will happen in this universe. But logically prior, not temporally prior, but logically prior to creating the universe, there's this middle knowledge uh, between the natural and the free knowledge of God knowing what free creatures would do in any given universe. Uh, so the idea is if God knows that, why would God create a universe where he knows people, some people would choose to go to hell. Now, some people that I highly respect believe God does not have middle knowledge. And so he doesn't actually know that. Uh, I am not as open to that conclusion because I think it would really wreak havoc with God's omniscience. And I think middle knowledge helps us to explain a lot of things about God's predestination for us. That's one option. Another option, though, is that there are certain goods that are achieved in God allowing someone to be damned, uh, that their continual existence apart from God, uh, it fulfills the good of glorifying God's justice. So God's justice against sin and that when we are in heaven, we will have just we have a sickening uh, view towards sin nowadays, uh, an overly sympathetic view because we are sinners and we always try to justify ourselves. So I, I actually was reading an article recently about a group that tried to get together in New York to, it was like a kind of a liberal citizen's watch, uh, getting together because a mental, you know, a man who had mental issues or whatnot, like beat somebody's dog to death. And they seemed to show really no concern that someone's dog was beaten to death. They were more worried about just other things in the community. My point is, though, that you you find this this odd kind of uh, sense of you know justifying all kinds of different behaviors. Now, of course, if that man was just completely mentally ill, he may not be culpable, but people can still be partially culpable for things and hold them hold them to account. Uh, so, my point with that is that when we get to heaven, you might say, "Oh, well, you know, well, you know, I think Aquinas said this that." People misquote Aquinas in this regard, saying that we'll find pleasure in viewing the damned as if we'll delight in their torment. That's not what he meant. What he means is that we may find pleasure in being grateful, knowing, wow, I am so thankful that God offered his mercy uh, and was merciful towards me, See, you know, seeing others who were stubborn and rejected God's mercy. And there's a good of justice, though, of justice being done. So that might, that's one option that it's good. These individuals, their existence itself is good. God's justice being glorified is a good to justify that. Uh, one that I played around with a bit that, that I find to be promising is that in some cases, if God did not 
create a damned person, then other people who would go to heaven would not end up in heaven. So for example, a, a person who ends up being damned may have three children who convert and want to spend eternity with God in heaven. Uh, why should that damned person have a veto power and prevent other people from coming into existence uh, who could glorify in God for all eternity? So that you know, so for the ability of it's kind of like actually that reminds me, I've, I should I should have wrote this down in the book of the parable. Uh, when Jesus tells a parable about when the workers in the, in the field go to the master of the field and they say, an enemy has sown weeds among the wheat, you know, should we pull them up? And the master represents God says, no, don't pull them up because if you pull up the weeds, the wheat shall be uprooted with it. Wait until they are mature and then separate the wheat from the weeds and the weeds shall go into the fire. So there it's like, oh, if you get rid of them, it'll actually uproot others who could enjoy God for all eternity. I'll have to include that, actually, if I ever fully write out this, <laughs> this answer that just popped in my mind. So yeah, that's, um, but once again, you sit and you think about these things and you may not have a full answer, but you can have something that gives you a decent handle on the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, um, just for anyone out there, you know, I've, especially in the beginning, I had many doubts, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses came up to me on the street corner, and they peppered me with things that I didn't know. And they quoted the Bible, they pointed their finger to the Bible, I said, Look, there it is, plain as day, you're wrong. Now, many people just run off to the Jehovah's Witnesses or name your religion without first researching their own faith. But I'm right. someone who doesn't like just to blindly believe. So I wanted just to make sure Catholicism wasn't correct. So I went and looked up their answers. And I went back the next week and I gave it to them and they gave me more. And I didn't know the answers. And my, and I'll tell you, I was shaken to my core. I was like, what if Catholicism is not true? I had this thing like, what? how do I know it's true? My mom told me so. That's why. Right, right. Because I was born Catholic and her mom told her and her mom told her. And so I started studying. And the more I studied, the more I found out there are good answers. And even if you're in a religion where you start studying, you realize that it's not what you think. Right. Not a bad thing, because then that's the path where it can lead to truth and to what is true. And that's where you want to get to anyway. So research, study, and Trent's going to give a whole bunch of ways that you can deal with your doubts at the end of the uh, podcast. But uh, did you want to add anything to that before we move on? No. no. Okay. That was just thoughts that I had off the top of my head. Sure. Um, so, and Trent is just scratching the surface on these. He has so many doubts and so many objections in this book from the skeptical mind, and he answers them all. And it's very well done. Um, maybe we could talk about uh, the me meager moral fruits of Christians. I find this uh, yeah. an interesting one as well. I remember when Dr. Scott Hahn converted, you know, he said... Um, he said to a priest, you know what, I, I don't see that, you know, I'm much different. You know, I have the sacraments, I have this, but I don't feel much different right now. And the priest said, um, you know, well, imagine if you didn't have the sacraments. And I was thinking to myself, that's not satisfying for me personally, because we know what it's like when he didn't have the sacraments. He was almost the same as what he is now. And so, I don't know, I was just, yeah. I've, I've wrestled with that in the past as well. Sure. And maybe you can I explain think, it for the people and what even this means if people don't know what. Yeah. The so the moral... idea here is that if Catholicism is true and we receive sanctifying grace through the sacraments, then why aren't we like these amazing, why uh, upon receiving the sacraments, why don't we become these amazing saints who have uh, exude holiness? And one argument against Catholicism or Christianity is the claim that, well, there's not much of a moral difference between Christians and non-Christians or Catholics and non-Catholics. Uh, 
And so if there isn't that much of a moral difference, then maybe there's no divine cause behind it at all. And so that would be the argument. And so there's a few different ways you could challenge an argument like that. One way is to challenge the minor premise, which is that the claim that there's no moral difference. And I actually find this to be a suitable thing to challenge. And uh, I think it's Paul Draper was the agnostic philosopher who came up with this argument. He even admits that this version of the argument doesn't work well because it's based on very tenuous assumptions. Like if you just say, well, there is no moral difference between Catholics and non-Catholics, Christians and non-Christians. First, you have to make sure your sample group is correct. If it's just people who call themselves Catholics and people who call themselves atheists, well, there's lots of people who call themselves Catholic, but they they haven't darkened a church in years. Uh, you know, their their faith is not really that important to them, and so you know you you're not going to see very much of a difference to them. Now you might say, but they have received the sacraments. Shouldn't that do something? Well, we don't believe that the sacraments just automatically cause things to happen in people. Uh, they provide spiritual graces to people. Uh, but that's something that we have to, uh, through initiative and cooperation with God, uh, we have to actively participate for that grace to manifest in our lives. We're not just puppets on a string, or we're not injected with spiritual turbo fuel or something like that. Or as we would say in Catholic philosophy, grace builds upon nature. So grace builds upon nature. When you receive this, uh, if you, you could be baptized as a baby and never, never go to church again your whole life, you have those graces, but if you never choose to actualize them by voluntarily making an act of charity, for example, that to, you know, out of theological, you know, out of love of God, not just human charity, uh, you're, you won't notice it because you haven't chosen to access the graces that you were given. And this can happen to, to any of us. So you have to compare the the control groups, and and I don't think that can really be done very well to statistically say, oh, you know, th this group and that group, you know, you don't, uh, you need to make sure you have, you actually do it, not just in my experience, because a lot of us have very warped anecdotal evidence in our mind, and that can lead to prejudices. As human beings, we're not very good at judging particular groups of people. Sometimes we judge people based on the worst representative members. Another problem with the argument is that it could be we live in a time where you don't have a lot of great Christians. Uh, you know, <clears throat> We have to look at the entire thing. There's been billions of Christians that have lived for thousands of years. So it could be on the whole, on average, Christians are morally superior to non-Christians, uh, but there's going to be isolated pockets where you don't notice it as much, especially in cultures that have been thoroughly Christianized anyways. Uh, but I will say there are, there is evidence. I have found evidence though, of Christians being morally superior. For example, uh, the people who are most likely to, uh, not engage in sins like, uh, sodomy, uh, or abortion or fornication, uh, are are Christians who are very committed to their faith. Now the problem is in the secular world they don't consider that a moral fruit. You know who who cares? There's nothing wrong with those things anyways. But I'd say that's a moral fruit. Look, we have people living very godly lives in this respect. But it's not even just that. There is evidence that Christians on average are more generous uh, in in giving and in volunteering than non Christians are. So I challenge the minor premise of the argument. Uh, but you could also challenge the major premise to say that we wouldn't, you know, just because you receive 
the sacraments, like going back earlier, it doesn't mean you're going to change immediately. Like from Scott Hahn's example, let's say you get confirmed, you're receiving to the church. I don't feel any different. Well, C.S. Lewis gave the example of growing. It's like if I said you're growing and you looked at you yourself biologically, I don't, I'm not growing. I don't see anything happening. Well, it's very slow. You have to go back and look in pictures six months, six years ago, 60 years ago. And then you can really see the trajectory. But it's always something we have to actively participate with God's grace to achieve that growth. It's not just something that's going to automatically happen. Yeah, I think that's an important part that we have to cooperate. We have to do it his way. And that's hard sometimes because we often want to do life our way. I remember my parents sent me to counseling because I had a whole subscription of issues. And um, I went there like this. you know. And one might ask me, well, why aren't you getting anything out of it? Well, because I didn't want to. <laughs> I went there. It wasn't really open. It was kind of boring and didn't put anything into it. But uh, same thing with my faith. I mean, I probably, even though I went to church every day, I'm sorry, every Sunday, I prayed the rosary every day, went to confession once a month. I still lived like the world in many aspects, not all. I was more moral than most of my friends. But the more I came closer to God, and when I went to Franciscan University and he changed my life inside out and backwards, and I literally gave my life to God in a real way. Right. I became far more loving, kind, peaceful, patient, joyful, even in evangelization. At first, I still had parts of me where I would bash people over the head. I was angry. I was. I right. would yell at them. I'd try to prove them wrong. But then God worked in my life again. And he, I mean, really powerfully. And he showed me that it's all about love and compassion and really loving the souls. And so I can just speak from my own experience that when you get closer to God, many times you do grow uh, holier. In fact, uh, there's a book uh, behind me called Better With God or Better Without God. And uh, it's a very interesting question, but I agree with you, Trent, that you know, the closer we come to Christ in theory, you know, we we should be growing toward him. But a lot of us have struggles. A lot of us have issues. A lot of us right. in this generation haven't been taught to pray. So, we, we we don't really have that deep communion with God many times that changes us from the inside out. And I do think over the last 50 years, there has been a lack of catechesis and passing on the faith in many ways. So perhaps people are looking, as you said, at this generation, but it might not have been that way through past generations. Right. That, that's right. And so we have to look at have a holistic view of, of everything, both communally and individually. Yeah. Very good points. Um, so, there's so many things we could talk about in this uh, book, and maybe we could talk about one more before we sure. go on to the last thing. Uh, can we talk about the uh, Marian? Uh, you talk a lot about the Marian uh, dogmas and doctrines, and a lot of people get attacked for that a lot, and it causes them to have doubts uh, on that. Maybe you could mention some of those or talk about your thoughts on those. Well, one thing that I mentioned in, when it comes to Mary is that sometimes people will have doubts because an apolo a, a apologist for a Protestant um, ecclesial community will point out to, uh, maybe they'll quote St. Alphonsus Liguori's book, The Glories of Mary, and they'll quote Catholic authors who sing these very exuberant praises of Mary and call that idolatry and say it takes away from Christ. Uh, and so this is what's wrong with Catholicism. And it's important to separate. If we find a difficulty, we need to ask, is this a difficulty with something the church teaches or the way a particular Catholic expresses it? Because you can read the dogmas of the faith. You don't have to speak in the extremely lofty words that maybe someone like St. Alphonsus might use. You just have to affirm that uh, Mary is the mother of God. And if you don't affirm that, you're actually not really Christian anyways, because then you'd be denying Christ's divinity. Uh, that Mary did not have sexual relations during her life. 
that she received the graces of baptism from the moment of her conception and was protected from sinning after that point, and that she was taken body and soul up into heaven, uh, similar to how Elijah was taken up into heaven, body and soul. Although there's there's nothing, she may have she probably died and then was taken up. The church doesn't have a defined teaching on whether Mary died or not, uh, unlike Elijah, which we see in scripture is taken up alive in heaven. Uh, so, but these other things that we'll read, I give an analogy in the book saying that, uh, you know, there is a difference between how a husband will talk about his wife and uh, how an attorney will talk about their client. So imagine a husband's wife is on trial. And in the courtroom, the attorney is going to be very reserved in the words that he says so that none of them can possibly be used against his client. The husband, however, doesn't care. He loves his wife, and he's just going to say how exactly how he feels, even if he's over the moon and says things that are grandiose, uh, that could be taken the wrong way. And I feel like sometimes it happens with Mary, that uh, in theological works that are meant to be devotions and praise of Mary, who is the mother of God, uh, they can be... You know, they're, they're not written to be read in a debate between Catholics and Protestants. They're written to just simply praise Mary, just like certain praise of Jesus or certain praise of God. You know, uh, it could come off as off-putting to a non-Christian uh, when you're trying to explain the faith to them uh, and say, well, don't, don't take this the, the wrong way is what we're, you're saying at this part or that part. And I think that's similar to some of the some of the praise that is given. But also I point out in the book that in many cases, this exuberant praise is counterbalanced and these Protestant apologists will selectively quote someone like St. Alphonsus and not quote where they qualify what they've just said so that it shouldn't be taken out of context. That has to be understood as well. Uh, but should we be praising Mary, Trent? I mean, shouldn't we just be praising Jesus alone? Well, we, can, we should praise uh, anything that is related to God. Uh, so we can praise and thank the Lord. Uh, you know, when we say that this sunset is beautiful, that doesn't mean that we don't, you know, we're not praising God because we've praised something that that God has created, or we thank God for creating something wonderful and majestic for us. We absolutely should praise Mary. In fact, in Luke chapter one, Mary says, "All generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name." I'm more referring to passages in. Play people like St. Alphonsus Liguori, when people say things like, um, you know, Mary, we praise you, for in you we find we find our salvation uh, even more so than through Jesus. You know, things kind of sound like that. Now, a Protestant reading just that one sentence might say, whoa, wait a minute here. Jesus saves us, not Mary. What's going on? What I said before. Now, what is meant in many of these cases is that while God has the power to damn us, Mary cannot possibly damn us. And so when people seek supplication from Mary and ask for her prayers and intercession, they know that she can only take that prayer to her son uh, in leading us closer to him and closer to heaven. So that, that's just what is meant uh, by phrases like that, for example. Not that Mary herself has the power to save us from sin uh, to accomplish our salvation, to remove the eternal punishment of sin. And these authors um, in the book, I talk about where St. Alphonsus immediately qualifies it in that sense, but some people just take him out of context in that regard. 
Yeah, I've seen that too with St. Louis de Montfort, who could come across as worshiping yes. Mary because of his right. flowery language. And people will selectively quote him, but they miss the very first page of the book, right. <laughs> which says that she, uh, God has never and does not now have any need of Mary, but he chose her from all eternity. And r- without God, she's less than nothing and she's less than dust. I mean, I mean that's yeah. the big less qualification than, than to it. everything else. Right. Less than an atom, I think he's. Adam, you're right. It is an atom. Yeah. You're correct about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and in fact, uh, I just want to point out too, if anyone hasn't seen, I think it's two videos back now, our, we just debunked Pastor John MacArthur, and he did exactly what Trent just said. He took a quote from Ludwig Ott to say that Catholics don't have access to the Father, and you only get to the Father through Mary, not Jesus, Mary. And he only quoted half of the first sentence, and he missed the next two, three sentences, which contradict what he was claiming. And then he quoted the last two. So when Trent says, if you have a doubt, look these things up, it's very important to look these things up and to do the research, to go to Catholic Answers, get the answers you need, because they will help solidify uh, real answers in your life so that you don't have to doubt. Right, exactly. Uh, Maybe we can finish up, Trent, by um, talking about how do we get rid of our doubts? You have a whole chapter ending in your uh, at the end of your book, which talk about how do you deal with doubts? Uh, Maybe you could talk about a few of those. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So I give some tips at the end. If you're doubting or struggling with the faith, like, what do I do if I feel like I just can't be Catholic anymore? Like, I don't know if I believe this there. I, I don't for, I don't pretend to have an exhaustive list of things you should do, but here's a few tips I find to be helpful. Uh, first recognize the hidden fuel of doubt. Uh, we're not just minds, computers, analyzing questions. We're human beings. Some, sometimes, honestly, doubts spring up when we're not taking care of the bodily aspect of our lives. We're not eating right. We're not sleeping. We're not exercising. And so we're not able to really objectively look at the issues at hand. So making sure to take care of ourselves physically and take care of ourselves spiritually. So sometimes we have these doubts because we're actually in a state of mortal sin and we uh, have a hard time uh, really you know, being full of uh, faith. You know, The super charity has been destroyed in our hearts, especially if we're in a state of mortal sin. And so it's no wonder that we can't even maybe apprehend some truths of the faith when we're in a condition like that. Even venial sin can darken our reasoning, as St. Paul would say. Uh, So going to frequent confession, uh, to be able to be spiritually healthy, to be physically healthy, to be able to confront those doubts. When we're at that point, we should separate a difficulty from a doubt. It's fine to have difficulties, things we don't totally understand, like the Trinity, the incarnation. Doubt would be more problematic if we just simply don't believe God can do what we actually know he can do uh, and, and reject his goodness in that respect. I give an analogy here or a comparison of Zechariah and Mary in Luke chapter one. This is very interesting because it seems like two people have doubts. One of them is punished and the other is not. So with Zechariah, the angel goes to him and he says, how shall I, you know, you're going to have a son. And they're, they're both doubt. They both seem to have doubts about having children. Zachariah says, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And then uh, the angel says, you'll be silent and unable to speak because you did not believe my words. But Mary, Gabriel says that Mary will conceive a child. And she says, how can this be since I know not man? And going back to St. Augustine, they have read in that passage from Luke, Luke 124, uh, a, a vow of uh, perpetual virginity. Mary's saying, well, how am I going to have a child when I have made a vow since I was a girl in the temple or what have you 
to not have children. And that's under the view that Joseph is a caretaker of Mary who had made a vow of virginity. Uh, and so what's interesting here is that, okay, well, what's the difference? Well, Gate, well, Zachariah, he is having a hard time understanding. Uh, he doubts that God has the power to overcome a certain difficulty, but that's really problematic because God is all powerful. How can Zachariah say that God is not able to give him and his wife a child when he had no problem giving Abram and Sarai a child uh, who were also advanced in years? God has shown throughout in the Old Testament the ability to overcome uh, things like infertility and sterility and old age. So this was a, a, a real doubt of God's ability to do what he had shown he had done before. Mary, however, did not have a doubt. She had a difficulty. She's saying, okay, I trust God, but I don't quite see the plan here because you're going to give me a child, but I don't, I, I don't know a man. I don't know man. So in the biblical sense. And so she's trusting God, but she doesn't understand how the method can be. It's beyond her. But she's not punished in that regard. Cardinal Henry Newman once said, 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. Just because you don't fully understand something about the faith doesn't mean you're in some kind of problematic doubting area. And we should put our difficulties into perspective. Look, if there, even if there's something you say, I can't uh, believe that Mary remained a virgin, and I, I'm just, I, I can't do that anymore. So I'm going to become an atheist. Okay, well, it doesn't mean you have to become an atheist. It just means you're now having, you can't assent to a dogma of the faith. That's still a big problem, but it doesn't mean you jumped atheism. Or I'll give you another example. I don't understand how in the Old Testament God could command Israel to kill men, women, and children of other tribes. Therefore, I'm going to become an atheist. Well, wait a minute, put it into perspective. Even if you don't understand it, at worst, you would just say, maybe this is just a, a non-literal reference in the text. It doesn't describe a literal event in history. It's meant to underscore to Israel to have nothing to do with the Canaanites, but these historical events never actually happened. That's a liberal view of scripture, maybe, though actually it's one I find defensible. I talk about it in my book, Hard Sayings, uh, because in the book of Joshua, it talks about how all the Canaanites were utterly destroyed. Then they show up again in Judges in the book of uh, Judges, which seems odd if they had been utterly destroyed, unless this was non-literal language. Uh, but once again, my point here, I'm not going to solve that whole problem with that issue. My point is you don't want to have a difficulty and run to the extreme solution of like becoming an atheist or something when you don't even have to give up your Christian faith. You could just say, uh, maybe this is non-literal or at worst, this part of the Bible is not inspired. Of course, that would contradict what the church teaches about scripture. But I'd rather have you be someone who believes in Jesus, believes in the church, has some trouble with scripture than just becoming a, a full-blown atheist or something like that. And then finally, if you're, if you're really struggling, like, I just don't know if I can believe this at all. I'm 50-50 on the fence about it. Well, just try it out. Just live it out. Don't squash your doubts, but just compartmentalize them and live out the parts of your faith you really enjoy, going to adoration, uh, going to mass, whatever parts of the faith that really bring you joy live those out. And if you're 50-50, just understand, hey, you know what? I got nothing to lose if I just choose to believe that this is true. Uh, I've, I've got nothing to lose. I have much to gain. And I don't have anything comparable to gain if I just give all of this up. That'd be a variant of Pascal's wager. Uh, yeah. So yeah. If, if I could just add one sure. uh, thing of what I see, I see a lot of people evangelizing <clears throat> to a youth ministry, directors of religious education. And I say, Hey, how's your prayer life? And they say, Oh my gosh, I don't have time to pray. You know, I'm doing oh, the Lord's work. I'm like, how can you do so... the Lord's work without the Lord? 
That's right. <laughs> and so I you, find that tangle gets, run drive. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I find so many people get into doubts and questions and problematic spiritual issues by not praying and not having and fostering that deep relationship with God. But outside of that, if you keep that and you have these struggles, definitely check out Trent's books, Hard Sayings, which I have. It's a great, fantastic book. Um, His other book, his newest book, um, Devil's Advocate, which covers so much more. It will answer so many of your questions. So I highly check it, uh, highly recommend it. You can check it out on Catholic Answers Press. And uh, I want to thank you today for joining us, Trent, and for uh, advertising your new book, which is a fantastic book. Of course. Happy to do so. Yeah. And I want to thank you all for watching today. I will link Trent's books and his uh, information down below so you can see it. If you want the book for yourself, just click the link and uh, we get nothing for it. It's just a great book. And uh, thank you for tuning in today. Check out our social media below. And if you'd like to support our ministry, our PayPal and Patreon are down below as well. Thank you all for watching and God bless you.